everyone, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from EPAM Continuum. About 20 miles away from our Boston studio is the town of Needham, Massachusetts. And in this town lies a school called Olin College of Engineering. Olin is a remarkable place, a college without tenure or even departments, and it produces collaborative, humane engineers by employing project-based learning. Olin people resemble EPAM Continuum people in many ways, and in fact, this small college of roughly 350 undergrads has given us three of our current engineers. So of course, we can't help wondering, how does Olin maintain its innovative spirit? And given that higher ed is traditionally change-adverse, change-ophobic if you will, how does Olin resist those forces? And why, after some early successes, hasn't it scaled into some sort of monstrous mega-college? To find out, we talked it up with John Stoke, Professor of Materials Science and Engineering Education at Olin. His research concerns the role that faculty plays in promoting lifelong learning, examining educational change processes in college settings, and investigating the effects of disciplinary integration and student autonomy on motivation and a broad range of learning outcomes. John took a trip off campus for a chat with EPAM Continuum's Toby Bottorf, VP of Service and Experience Design. Let's eavesdrop now on their animated chatter. Hi, John. Welcome to Continuum. Welcome to the Resonance Test. Um, let's jump right into your role at Olin. Um, you do not currently lecture, um, but you're on the faculty. What do you do at Olin? Uh, hi, Toby. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, so life at Olin as a faculty member is, is a little different uh, than it is at, at many schools um, and uh, can be a little surprising to some people. So what, what do we do? Um, I'd say in, in, in short, we try to create a, a learning experience uh, for students and for ourselves that looks quite different than, than the norm, uh, non-traditional. Um, that that translates in the classroom to, uh, uh, for example, students asking questions and then trying to figure out ways to answer their own questions, and uh, people like me, faculty, kind of running around trying to uh, support uh, that that curiosity and inquiry and intrinsic drive, uh, student exploration. Um, the first day of class, for example, uh, in a typical technical course that I teach. Uh, I will walk in and um, invite students to uh, join me in an exploration uh, in whatever domain we're talking about. Maybe it's engineering or maybe it's applied science or maybe it's education. Um, and, um, uh, and then provide just enough scaffold for uh, teams of students or for individuals to start uh, to, to kind of dig into questions and problems um, that are exciting and interesting to them. So this sounds like an approach that um, takes a lot more in-the-moment work, that you're designing it as you're going through it, as opposed to um, a series of lectures that you've delivered for years that you're working on optimizing, ironing some kinks out of. It seems like a much more um, active and unstructured approach. Absolutely. Uh, yes, and it's uh, it's scary as hell sometimes, <laughs> um, especially when you're new at it. Uh, and this is uh, this is something that we talk a lot about uh, as faculty at Olin uh, is that when you when you take this this step from traditional teaching, where you kind of plan out everything. Um, and I used to do this. I did this for for years at at a couple of different schools. Where I'd think through, you know, what is the knowledge acquisition that I that I care about, 
Um, how do I most clearly present that information or, or those facts or those ideas to my students? And then you plan out kind of minute by minute uh, what, what the, the lecture looks like. Uh, when you're talking about a, a student-centered or student-driven or active learning experience, um, you have to kind of think differently about the structure that you need in place to, to do the things that you are trying to do. Um, and it's a different list of things. Um, so when I sit down and think about a, an active learning experience, uh, my focus isn't so much on knowledge acquisition in the, in the discipline or in the domain. Uh, it's on what I might consider more sophisticated or higher level skills that oftentimes extend well beyond uh, that particular domain. So when I sit down to design a course, I'm thinking, uh, is design, our design and creativity part of this course? Our team, uh, teamwork and, and collaboration part of this course? Is critical thinking part of this? And to what extent um, will this course help students become better lifelong learners or self-directed learners? And then you start to imagine the experiences that will uh, that will help students make progress in those areas instead of uh, collecting uh, disciplinary knowledge or or, hmm. or information. So these these sound like um, ways of teaching and ways of learning that are um, somewhat experimental. Um, maybe you've got reference points elsewhere, but I'm curious what what they mean for how you measure. Um, quality or just student outcomes, whether at the most foundational level, um, it, it makes accreditation more complicated for you. <laughs> um, how, do you how do you measure um, that you're doing what you want to be doing in, in terms of quality? Sure. Um, well, measurement, as you, as you might imagine, looks a lot uh, different in yeah. this, this environment. Um, but I think there's there's kind of an assumption that people make that that things that are outside of their of we'll say low-level cognition like knowledge acquisition and and uh, application uh, that it's you know maybe impossible to measure um, or way too hard to measure uh, but what I find is that if you if you just start digging around a little bit um, education has this long history where people are asking questions that extend well beyond the, uh, their particular, that well beyond knowledge acquisition in their particular domain. So, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, there are people uh, asking questions about uh, motivation, for example, mm. and, and what that looks like and how we might measure it. Um, teaming and collaboration, there's a lot of work that's been, been done there, systems thinking, um, self-directed learning. There are decades. There's decades of research. So if you're if you're willing to kind of put in the time to understand what these other things are, um, then you can you can make some progress in kind of figuring out how you might go about promoting that in a classroom and then measuring it. So um, you know, I've heard educators say that that things like motivation can't be measured. Yeah. Um, absolutely not true. There are <laughs> There are dozens of different ways to, to measure motivation. There are, you know, 20 plus theories about uh, what motivation is or what it looks like. Uh, and then, you know, decades of research on, on how we might promote positive forms of motivation yeah. in the classroom. Um, and so we, we use that and we apply it and, we, and, and so we, we'll, we'll couple a measurement of technical knowledge and skills 
uh, alongside a measurement of you know whether or not students are developing intrinsic drive, for example, mm-hmm. um, or self-directed learning skills. Another another dimension of what you want. Uh, students to learn that I think is intriguing is you mentioned um, teamwork and collaboration. Yeah. Um, we see a lot of universities um, shifting the way they teach in that direction. I think it's about aligning it more with the future of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not enough to just put people together. Teamwork and collaboration can be done well or done badly. They can yeah. be structured right. Yeah. Um, what have you learned about um, how to set up teams for actual teamwork? It's a great question. Uh, one of the things that we learned is that it, it depends on what you're trying to do um, in that particular environment. So uh, I, uh, at some point last year, after I left Olin and, and came back, I, um, I just started kind of watching what was happening in, in some different classrooms that weren't mine. Uh, kind of put myself in observer role. And I started to realize, wow, at Olin, we have probably 10 or 12 different ways in which we set up project teams. Um, so the initial idea generation, team formation, and project planning looks differently from course to course. Um, and you start to dig into that a little bit, and you realize, oh, there's there are reasons hmm. it looks different from course to course. And that is the goal of that experience might be might be different. Um, you know, and, and kind of to go to the extremes, you might, you might imagine a, a teaming experience that is really about um, producing a, a product that works might be very different than a teaming experience that is about um, maybe more process-oriented uh, versus a teaming experience that is more about learning to relate to others in a, in a positive way that you might actually scaffold or structure those experiences differently to get at different different goals. That's really interesting. Is there, is there also um, uh, an element of um, exploration or even trial and error in that? Um, I'm asking because you've, you've talked about um, Olin deliberately making space for new stuff to emerge, and I'm assuming that also means new methods, new approaches. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, so in the early days of Olin, we uh, I like to describe our, our situation as one of having lots of excitement and lots of energy and lots of resources, but absolutely no skill. Um, and, <laughs> and we also were, were forced to create. We, we had no curriculum. Um, we had to put something on paper and, and walk into the room on the first day of classes and, and offer something. So uh, in the early days of Olin, um, there was nothing but... Um, sort of new frontier in front of us uh, that, that uh, you know, we, we described it as a blank slate and we had a mandate to be bold and innovative. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't really know what we were doing, so we were kind of hacks at it for a while. Um, over time, you know, and back to the, the teaming question, over time we started to realize, oh, there are other people in the world who know something about teaming and collaboration and know something about um, you know, getting teams off the ground uh, in, a, in a positive way. Um, so you know, uh, maybe go back to this, this teaming question for a minute. Um, one of the things that I tried early on in, in one of my, my courses is I thought, oh, teaming, I care about that. I'm gonna have my students work on teams, but I want them to actually come up with the, the ideas for their projects. 
So what I'll do is I'll walk into class and I'll ask them, what are their ideas for, for projects? Um, so I tried that. And in a class of 24, 25 people, I had maybe three or four students kind of, you know, uh, raising their hands quietly and, and saying, oh, I, I might have an idea, but I'm not sure it's any good. And ended up, you know, at the end of this session, uh, having maybe six ideas up on the board from a class of 24 people. Um, and uh, kind of reflected on that and thought that was a terrible way of going about forming teams. Um, there are better ways to do it. So, uh, so the next time around, I, I had uh, all the students go to the whiteboard and just write ideas that they had on the whiteboard. Uh, that resulted in maybe, you know, on average one idea per person, so 20-ish ideas per team. And at some point I started getting into uh, design at Olin and started to realize, oh, there are all these, uh, these, all, all these approaches for, um, for uh, idea generation uh, with groups of people. Um, so picked up some tools and some skills from designers, applied it to my class. The next time around, I had um, individuals do some pre-work on post-it notes, um, write all the ideas they had, brought them together, and had this facilitated uh, sharing of ideas. We ended up with like 80 to 100 ideas um, mm. for, for different projects. Much better ideas, much more ideas. Um, and you know, I was at the same time developing some skills and facilitating that team formation process. So back to your question about creating new things at Olin, in the early days of Olin, we would, we would sit around and kind of share ideas in a way that wasn't particularly generative. Um, you know, each person would say, yeah, I kind of want to offer this course, so I'll, I'll try, you know, I'll do a trial of that. And I'd say now um, we have uh, an interesting situation where we have a faculty with a lot more skills in exploring and generating uh, in a collaborative way new ideas but less room to actually launch those ideas so we have this curriculum that we're running kind of in production mode um, uh, that's uh, and then you know these little pockets in the curriculum where we can we can create new things yet we have a group of people with you know off the chart skills now in coming up with new ideas that they want to try new experiments they want to run so uh, it's kind of an interesting situation it sounds like it requires um, uh, a consistent way of thinking about retiring some things, even if they work, to make way for the new things. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a hard thing to do, it turns out. Um, sure. You, you create a, uh, a learning experience or a course uh, or, a, or a stream in the curriculum that, that over time is developed to a point where it works and people recognize that it's doing what we, we thought it would do. Uh, to say, you know what, we've we've learned enough about that thing. Let's retire it, set it aside, and try something else. This is very upsetting to people, and it's a very hard thing to do. Um, <laughs> Understandably. So uh, yeah. So so specific example I can give on this one is um, uh, so a a buddy of mine, a colleague at Olin, a, his, a history professor, uh, Rob Martello, and I. Uh, when we first arrived at Olin, we had this idea for an integrated course that would um, merge my field, material science, with his field, which is history and technology. We thought history and, and materials, this is going to be great together. Again, we didn't know what we were doing, but we tried. So we put something out there, and it was awful. The f I say it was awful. The students seemed to still like it the first time around, but from our perspective, we didn't we weren't quite sure what this course was 
trying to do. So it took us a few iterations to get it to a point where we, f- we felt like it was actually um, a reasonable experience. Um, and you know, to make that concrete, when we first started, we thought an integrated course of history and material science, but we ended up with two separate syllabi and two separate sets of goals. Um, and then this kind of back and forth tag team thing um, that we called integration, which is really wasn't integration. Second time around, it became more tightly uh, uh, coupled. Uh, the third time around, it was starting to really look like an integrated experience where you couldn't really say that part of the course is technical, that part of the, cor- the course is historical analysis. So we continued running it and we eventually moved to this optimization mode and it got to the point where it was one, one of the most popular courses on campus. It, it would fill up at registration time in seconds. Mm. Um, everybody loved it. Everyone talked about it. Olin's marketing people were, were milking the heck out of this thing. You know, it showed up in these articles and we started studying it in a formal way. So we got some external funding from the National Science Foundation to conduct these formal research studies to ask questions like, are we actually promoting intrinsic motivation and self-directed skills? Are our students actually collaborating um, and learning from each other? Uh, are they um, engaging in critical thinking and metacognitive awareness? Um, and we answered those questions through years of research. So we re- ended up running the course, I think, nine times. And we got to the point where Rob and I looked at each other and thought, I don't think there's much more to learn from this thing. Yet at the same time, it's one of the most popular experiences on campus and we still love teaching it. But we made this really tough decision, in part, I think, to be a little provocative. Uh, we said, let's just kill it. Let's retire <laughs> it. Let's, let's just decide right now we are not going to offer, uh, it, it was called the stuff of history, so stuff for materials and mm-hmm. history. Um, and, um, and students were uh, upset. Um, you know, I had students coming up to me that I didn't know, like first-year students saying, uh, I heard you got rid of stuff at history. That's the reason I came to this school. Um, and I'd be like, well, there are other, you know, great courses here. Yeah. And, um, um, but it's worse than that. So um, uh, we had, uh, we had an uh, uh, alumni weekend uh, this past weekend. And Rob uh, had the privilege of standing up in front of our, our graduates and giving them updates on the curriculum. And one of the things that he mentioned this past weekend was that we retired the stuff of history. And the audience booed. They were very upset. Um, and of course, you know, he's, he's trying to, to, to make them feel better and say, yeah, 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 but you have to think about, you know, what, what is Olin here? What, is Olin, uh, what was Olin College established to do? We were not established to create a, uh, a killer undergraduate program and then continue running that same program forever. We mm. were created to be innovative, to be bold, and to, and, to, and to continue to take risks that might be difficult for people at other schools to take. Um, but they weren't having it. I mean, they were just upset that we killed their, you know, their, this, this course that they had really fond memories of. I'm, I'm imagining administrators and professors listening to this um, just getting heartburn um, yeah. at what you're advocating because uh, it just seems to run counter to what is normal. Um, the idea that you your focus is on prototyping, on learning by doing and reflecting and 
constantly living in an unresolved, um, ambiguous space. And once you've got something figured out, you've learned all you can from it, and it's time to retire it. Most universities would say, that's when we focus on optimizing it, and it becomes like a cash cow almost in the curriculum. Yeah, yeah, this is a, a pretty difficult thing to balance, I can imagine, as an administrator, yeah. um, because you want to be able to hold up something to the world and say, yeah, we have we have these things that you know your students and employers are going to love, and we're going to keep doing those things. Um, but at a school that was created, uh, at least from my perspective, to to change education, uh, you know, initially engineering education was our focus. We we were created to to transform engineering education. You can't get stuck yeah. um, with one curriculum, and I think you know that's. That's one of the, the most challenging things at Olin right now is to um, to decide, you know, where to create creative space uh, in in our programs, uh, which things to hold on to and to conserve, and which things to say, you know, what we've kind of got all the learning that we can get out of that, so, so yeah. let's move on. It sounds like students come to Olin with an understanding that they're going to play an active role in their education, and they're not going to be fed knowledge um, that they're that they're going to be operating in kind of an unfinished space I think at most universities the idea that you are uh, that sounds like the idea that you're experimenting on your students which right. um, nobody would want to admit that they're doing although I believe all great professors do that they reflect on a on an individual course or on a curriculum and they're constantly looking to make it better um, is there something special about Olin that you feel gives you the permission to do what other universities don't want to do, which is play in this unresolved, um, ambiguous space? I, I think if you, if you look at Olin's founding precepts, you will find that's why we were created. Um, and that's why we are intentionally small, and it's why we are, I think, pretty heavily resourced. Um, we have... Uh, we have the size and we have the, uh, the resources and we have the people to, to take the kinds of risks and to explore in ways that, that might be difficult for, for other, uh, other schools. Um, so um, uh, my opinion is that that's, that is why we exist. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something else um, earlier that I thought was really fascinating. Uh, you talked about um, generative uh, approaches, that using, using design, um, not just research and analysis. Um, we live at Continuum a little bit on the opposite side of that. We use design automatically, but we, when we do research um, in an academic space, the, the level of rigor is not um, necessarily credible to those folks. Mm. And we have to explain that we're not doing it to reach um, academic grade conclusions out of the research, but merely to spark generative design. I'm curious about your kind of complementary take on that, which lives in that um, space of analysis and research, and you're looking to push into design. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a big believer that, that you you have to get out and try new things in order to know what research questions to ask, um, which I think is a little different than, you know, you, you hear a lot in, in higher ed, uh, research-based practices. 
um, which means that someone else went out and did the work to prove that 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 there's an answer or there's a right way to go about doing things, and you're going to take that person's results and apply it to your your situation. Um, so research as the the driver to the thing that you do um, I, that that doesn't resonate strongly with me, and 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 this is based, I think, in large part on my Olin experiences. Is we didn't know what questions were worth asking until we got into this unknown space and started doing things. So, you know, things emerged at Olin over time, not because someone, some other researcher said this is a way to do, you know, this is the best practice in teaching engineering or teaching science or or teaching history. Um, we started asking questions that 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 many people thought were, you know, maybe a little risky to be asking, like, can we design a course, you know, again, I keep harping on this intrinsic motivation idea, can we design a course that, that promotes uh, student creativity? Or can we design a course that, that promotes uh, intrinsic drive? And, and that's a question that, um, you know, I, you know, my my opinion is that that the research data will tell you one thing, but it won't tell you how to how to do the design work. So, yeah. what I'd love what I'd love to see in 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 academia is a shift um, uh, towards um, what some people call design research um, or action research is another term that you see, um, where you have people kind of simultaneously engaging and asking questions that might be called research questions uh, as they're engaged in doing things. Um, this one author I like, Michael Fullen, writes a lot about educational change. He has this phrase uh, that that doing is the crucible of change. Mm. Um, I've, I very much buy into that idea. That's very aligned with how we think, which is um, we frequently make things in order to ask better questions. Yes, I, I love that. Yeah, and I think it, it, it certainly applies to, to higher ed. Great. So I have one more question worth asking, which um, is a biggie, uh, a good place to close. A question about um, the the mission in a relatively disrupted time, um, technologically, culturally. Um, what's a university for in the 21st century? Getting philosophical in the, uh, <laughs> in the final question. Um, well... What I hear right now, I find a little disturbing. Um, and what I see going on at kind of at the national level, I find a little, a little bit uh, disturbing. And that is kind of a shift towards um, uh, utility value in education. So um, education isn't worth doing unless it's equipping people with uh, marketable skills or skills that they can use right out, you know, right as soon as they graduate uh, to to get a job. Uh, so it's this, this idea of of we in higher ed are producing, and it kind of that this this mode kind of feels like a production line. We're producing good good workers, um, so employable uh, people, and. I get that, and I and I do think there's something important there. If if people aren't leaving colleges able to engage in in the world that we live in, um, uh, then then we might have a problem. Uh, but there are other goals of education uh, that I that I think can sometimes be pushed aside if your sole focus is on employment, um, and and these include things like um, personal growth. 
so what does it mean to to develop as a as a as a whole person or a, a good person uh, or to a person with a a, um, a uh, positive well-being uh, and then there are questions around engagement and community outside of work you know what does it mean to to develop a, in a way that allows you to relate to to other communities, uh, to to be a citizen, um, to not just engage in with a company and and, and make a paycheck. Um, and I and I kind of like there's a there's a list of goals that that is put out by UNESCO, which which I I, I think kind of broadens people's perspective a little bit on the purpose of education. They talk about knowing goals, uh, which is common in academia, we talk a lot about knowing things in our discipline, but they also talk about uh, doing, so that's kind of the, the skill piece. Um, but then they add to it being goals. Uh, who are you as a person? Uh, and, and what's the role of education in, in, in allowing you to, to explore and develop? And then they talk about relating to others. And I think if we can, if we can create an educational environment that hits on, on all four of those domains, and not just skills, and certainly not just knowing stuff. Um, then, then we might end up with something that that is worth doing. I love it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for this great conversation. Thank you. EPAM Continuum is a global innovation design firm with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to John and Toby for their great conversation today. Many thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Unending appreciation to Ken Gordon, our producer, for his masterminding behind the scenes. This has been The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.